0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today's episode is titled Joan of Arc, Part 2 Dreams Never Die. Subtitle The Crowning of a King. That King being Charles VII, the Dauphin, the eldest son of the mad Charles VI and Queen Isabeau of France. As you remember from Part 1, Queen Isabeau had signed away France's independence to England. With the Treaty of Troyes, which declared her son Charles to be illegitimate, and promised her eldest daughter Catherine to the young King of England Henry the Sixth, while at the same time fulfilling the first half of an ages-old prophecy—that being, a woman shall lose France, a virgin from Lorraine shall restore it—and Joan of Arc, called Jeanne d'Arc by the French, was doing her best to restore it. It was June eighteenth, fourteen twenty-nine and French morale had never been higher. The French had been marching all through the Loire River Valley, signing new recruits to fight, lifting people's pride and spirit, and winning every battle they took on. Their confidence was unbridled, and their fear of ambush, with the English seemingly on the run, was forgotten. As their columns moved up the road toward Pete, they rode through thick stands of forest and brush, enough to hide an army. And they failed to place scouts ahead of and around their line of march. They had been promised another victory by the maid of Orleans, who traveled with them. Eighty knights, led by Lahir, who had been with Joan at Orleans, led the vanguard toward Pate. The knights who led the column were only two miles out of Pate when a disturbance occurred. There was a sudden rustle from the woods, and a huge stag broke out onto the old Roman road they had been following and froze looking at them for a long moment. Then it bolted into the woods on the opposite side from where it had emerged, and a few seconds later sounds of shouting were heard. Sounds that were definitely English. The stag had run directly into an area where the English had been laying in wait to ambush the column. Lahir reacted quickly, sending scouts ahead, who reported back that the English were in the process of setting up their defenses, a line of sharpened stakes which guarded their bowmen from attack by the cavalry, and it was not entirely in place yet he sent a messenger back to the main column to rush up the army and then turned to attack. Lahir's cavalry charge surged toward the hedgerows where the English army had been setting up and caught them completely off balance. The English line began to break before the French cavalry could reach it and the men began running in all directions. The French cavalry cut them down and a massacre ensued. The fields were strewn with dead and dying English. When Joan arrived, she was overcome with grief for the dead and the dying. She dismounted, kneeling down beside the nearest dying English soldier, cradled his head in her arms, and did her best to soothe him as he drew his last breath. Two thousand Englishmen died that day, while the French lost one hundred men. To Joan, it was the curse that men had to die that made her mission so very difficult. She had begged the English to leave France before Orléans, but they had ignored her she did not want war, she did not want carnage and death, yet she couldn't change the minds of those who did want it. The march north through the Loire River Valley was aimed at ramps, which is where Charles was to be crowned, according to the voices that had directed her. And Charles was not doubting her vision now, if he ever had, with city after city throwing open their gates to them along the way. Charles was with the column, mounted on a large black charger, "'surrounded by Jeanne d'Arc and his closest knights and advisers. "'They stopped in Auxerre, which, although loyal to Burgundy, "'did not offer resistance, and provided supplies for the army. "'Next was Troyes, the city where his mother had signed away his country and his title. "'It was early one spring morning when Troyes came into view, "'and they sent out their entire garrison, which was only five hundred men, "'to let Charles and the French army know that they intended to fight. Charles's forces outnumbered them ten to one, although they had no provisions themselves. Still, they decided to mount a siege, cutting off Troyes from all incoming supplies. As it turned out, fortune favored the French army with regard to provisions. That previous winter, a visiting friar had found his way to Troyes, carrying a message that the end of the world was at hand, and that Jesus was coming back that summer, and that the people of Troyes needed to make ready for his angelic host so instead of planting the usual wheat crop, the farmers of Troyes and the surrounding area planted beans, which ripened much earlier than wheat crops. No army of angels descended upon Troyes, but it was an army, and a hungry one. The beans were just turning ripe when the army showed up. The siege had gone on for a week when Charles, thinking they were wasting their time here when this city should be bypassed, turned to Jeanne for advice. She advised him to stick it out, and asked if she could order the building of outworks in the moat that surrounded the walled city. He granted it, and she could be seen by the sentries on the walls directing the construction. They were convinced that she was a witch and had supernatural powers. They could see that she had a plan, and they didn't like it. They asked for a parley, and soon agreed to discharge their fighting men and accept the French army. Soon Charles was given a seat at the table where his mother had betrayed him, and the city was his. A bittersweet reward. On July 17, 1429, the peasant girl from the borders of Lorraine stood among the highest-ranking people of France and watched as Charles was anointed king in a lavish ceremony within the Rams Cathedral. Her heart was filled with joy at that moment because she had fulfilled her promise and her duty. Near her stood Jean Pasquerel, her confessor, always faithful to her and always protective of her. It was an elaborate ceremony. The vaulted ceilings and richly decorated walls gave a majestic overtone to the proceedings here in this cathedral. The place where the first king of France had been baptized by Saint-Rémy nearly 1,000 years ago, followed by every king of France until now. A royal sword was brought to knight the king, that sword later called the Sword of the Maid, and that sword having been lost to history sometime during the French Revolution. The king was awarded his golden scepter, his royal robes, his golden spurs, and ring, and finally, the crown of France. Charles was Dauphine no longer. He was now Charles VII, king of France. Jean was standing near him throughout the ceremony, standing motionless, holding her battle-worn banner, and smiling with pride for the new king. When the crown was placed on his head, she threw aside the banner and flung herself at his feet, crying, "Noble king!'' Then, now is accomplished the will of God. As tears streamed down her cheeks, all who watched were driven to tears as well. It was impossible not to, considering what it had taken to get here, and knowing that the courage of the young girl in knight's armor was largely responsible for it. The king stayed in Rams for many weeks, accepting the advice of his council, and deciding to negotiate with Philip of Burgundy, whose pro-English forces still held Paris and a large section of northern France. Jeanne was still being led by voices, and pleaded with Charles to lay siege to Paris now while the iron was hot, but he put her off, remaining suspicious of her judgment, and listening to the leaders that now surrounded him. This continued for months, with Charles ignoring her advice in order to carry on negotiations with Philip, who was stalling purposely in order to give himself time to fortify Paris. Meanwhile, Jean was assigned to lead the Duke of Alencon on a practically pointless march to free towns surrounding ramps. By August 26, 1429, Charles, after seeing that negotiations for the past three months with the Duke of Burgundy had been in vain, decided belatedly to attack Paris. Jean and the rest of the army had been moving toward Paris, where they captured a small village near the city and established a base of operations at La Chapelle. From there they sent small groups toward the city to gain intelligence as to the defenses which had been set up. What they saw was a newly fortified Paris, a walled city which had been nearly impregnable just months ago, and now was extremely well fortified on all sides. Charles' unwillingness to listen to her advice was going to prove costly. Today the chapel of St. Genevieve still stands on the outskirts of Paris, and it was here, outside the walls of Paris then, that Jeanne went to pray for guidance. She left the next morning filled with determination to lead her army to victory. Charles arrived on September 7th, and Jean, along with the Duke of Alençon, gave the order to attack. The Burgundians watched from the towers and walls as the Maid of Orléans rode into view on her large black charger, carrying her banner. As with nearly all walled cities of that time, there was a moat surrounding the city, a river of water, in this case a river, designed for the purpose of slowing down a charge so that the bowmen could pick off all who tried to cross it and to prevent or at least slow the movement of scaling ladders and equipment. Jean led the attack across the moat as cannons began to boom and leaden missiles began to rain down from the high walls upon Jean and her army. Crossbows twanged and men and horses screamed and fell and the attackers launched grappling hooks in the process of trying to scale the walls. It was bloody and desperate fighting, it continued for hours. This is the eyewitness account, written by Percival de Cagny. On Thursday, Day of Our Lady, 8th day of the month of September, 1429, the Maid, the Duke of Alençon, the Marshal's de Beausac and de Ray, with a great number of soldiers and archers, left at about 8 in the morning from La Chapelle, near Paris, in fine order, some to give battle, the others to support those who would make the assault. The maid, the Marshal de Ray, and Sieur de Gaucourt, by her order, went to deliver the assault at Port Saint-Honor. The maid took her standard in her hand, and with the foremost entered the fosses near the swine market. The assault was severe and long, and it was marvelous to hear the noise of the cannons and culverins that those directed on those without, and from all manner of shafts so thickly planted as to seem innumerable. And though the maid and a great number of knights descended into the vases, with others on the borders and nearby, very few were wounded. Many of those on foot and horse were struck down by stone cannonballs, but by the grace of God and the fortune of the maid, never a man of them died, nor was so wounded that he could not return at his ease to his camp without another aid. The assault lasted from about the hour of noon until near dusk, and after sunset, the maid was struck in the thigh by a bolt from a crossbow. After she was struck, she insisted more strongly than ever that the soldiers should attack the walls, and that the place would be taken. But because it was nightfall, and she was wounded, and because the soldiers were weary with the long assault they had made, the seer de Gaucourt and others came to take the maid, and against her wish carried her from the field, and thus failed the assault. And she had very great regret thus to depart, saying, By my staff, the place would have been taken." They placed her on a horse and conducted her to lodging at La Chapelle and all the others of the King's company with the Duke of Bar and the Count of Clermont, who this day come from Saint-Denis. At the same time, there was an effort made from the pro-French group within the walls to effect an opening for the French troops. To this we add the eyewitness description of Clement de Falkenberg. On Thursday, September 8th, the Feast of the Nativity of the Mother of God, the soldiers of Monsieur Charles de Valois assembled in great numbers near the walls of Paris and at the Port Saint-Honor, rather hoping by a popular tumult to oppress and injure the town and the inhabitants, than to succeed by force of arms. About two hours after noon, they began to make a semblance of an intention to assail the place. Hastily did some of the enemy at the swine market and near the gate bring up long bundles of wood and throw them into the outer trenches that were dry, next into the ditches close to the walls, where the water was high. At this moment, the disaffected or bribed people in the town raised shouts throughout the whole place on either side of the bridges, yelling that all is lost, that the enemy has entered. Thereon, all the people in the churches at Sermon were panic-stricken, and most of them fled to their houses and shut the doors. There was no other commotion. Those who were appointed to that duty stayed on guard on the walls and at the gates, and others, coming up, made strong and good opposition to the men of Charles de Valois, who remained in the outer fosse, and without, at the swine market, till ten or eleven o'clock, when they departed with loss, several of them being slain or wounded by gunshot and arrow-shot. Among others, a woman called La Pucelle, who was one of the leaders for Charles de Valois, was wounded in the leg by an arrow. The plan of the leaders was rather to injure Paris by a commotion within, than by armed assault. For had they been even four times more numerous than they were, they could not have taken the place either by storm or siege, for it was well supplied with food, and the townsfolk and garrison were perfectly at one in the resistance, as it was reported that Charles de Valois had given up the place to be sacked, ordered a massacre of men and women of all ranks, and would plow the site of a town of a Christian people, a thing not easily credible. The attack failed, The next day Jeanne was now lying in her bed with her wounded leg bound up and told Charles that if he attacked this day the city would be his. But Charles didn't take her advice and called off the attack. The siege of Paris was considered a failure and it would become the first defeat that France would suffer under Jeanne's command. Not that she hadn't fought bravely or called the right shots. Charles had foolishly given the Duke of Burgundy way too much time to fortify Paris and the attack on Paris lasted only one day with no attempt at a siege. Siege battles were not won in a day. One reason Charles backed out so soon may have been that he couldn't pay his troops, and he may have feared that once this became known, they would turn on him. The towns they had captured were only beginning to pay their dues, and Charles was now faced with having to dismiss a large part of his army. Winter was approaching, and Charles's thoughts had turned to other matters, His confidence in Joan was diminishing as the weeks and months passed, and his new responsibilities and challenges were rendering her a thing of the past. He was providing her with a very comfortable existence, a vast mansion with servants, and she was given the finest clothing and style of life that anyone could want. But it wasn't in her nature to live that way, and the voices still came to her telling her there was an enemy to defeat. Once healed, She did lead patrols out to capture bandits and conduct surveillance, but her role, as far as Charles was concerned, was now seen as that of an honored knight. Meanwhile, he had resumed negotiations with Burgundy. As winter passed into spring, Charles, having watched as Jeanne was becoming more and more depressed, agreed to let her join a small campaign whose purpose it was to capture small towns within Charles's territory that had not yet submitted to the king's authority. One of these towns was Saint-Pierre-le-Mottier. When Jeanne reached that town, along with her commander, her old friend Jean Dallon, it quickly put up a strong resistance. Jeanne's small army attacked, but it turned into a disaster. Dallon, along with many of his men, was wounded and called to retreat, and as he was leaving the field, he saw with horror that Joan had not heeded the order to retreat. Instead, she was fighting with just six knights against an army of defenders." he screamed out for her to retreat but she yelled back i still have 50000 men and she said it so loudly that many men under doulon heard it and turned back to help her doulon immediately called them to support her they rallied and renewed the attack and saint pierre le fell soon charles was find again that he could not trust the duke of burgundy by the spring of 1430 the peace was gone "'and Burgundian soldiers were marching once again "'on the cities outside of Paris, "'the most important being that of Compiègne. "'It was a small town, and not well fortified, "'and it had pledged its loyalty to Charles VII. "'The Duke of Burgundy sent the town a letter "'demanding their loyalty. "'They rushed to prepare for war. "'Jean begged King Charles for the chance "'to lead an army to protect that city, "'but he refused, not willing to place his trust in her, "'even though she was the one responsible,' for getting France to where they were now. Frustrated, she gathered two hundred loyal men and led them to Compiègne herself. The city was partially surrounded then by arriving Burgundian forces. She and her small army had to enter under cover of darkness in order to slip by the gathering enemy forces. She stayed in the city for three weeks, helping to prepare fortifications, and continuing to listen to the voices that were still telling her that the English and their French allies must be driven out of France. Jean worked on a plan with the city's commander, Guillaume de Flavy to attack the Burgundian troops on the outside by leading a surprise attack that would put them to flight. And they launched the attack on May 24th in the mid-afternoon, with Jean riding tall with her banner on her charger and wearing a gold doublet that reflected the sun. She led a charge at full gallop toward the first of the enemy camps. But the English had somehow gotten word of her planned attack, and at the same time she was leading a charge on the enemy encampment, 6,000 English reinforcements were on their way toward her army, threatening to catch her men between the two English forces. Guillaume de Flavy and his men had been assigned to protect the raised road that led back to the walled city, so that a path of retreat, if needed, remained available. They watched helplessly as Jeanne led a cavalry charge which tore into the ranks of the Burgundians, leaving only her banner visible above the fracas, while cannons boomed from the city walls, sending hot metal into the ranks of the English. But now she found her army fighting two forces, the English and the Burgundias, and she was badly outnumbered. Her men began to fall back, some casting glances at the road that led back to the safety of the city, but she would have none of it. She called out that victory was sure, all they had to do was stay and fight, and they again crashed into the enemy, this time the Burgundian army. And this time they were victorious. But her planned surprise attack was no longer a surprise and now the reinforcements that had been called forth charged into the battle against Jean's forces. She was surrounded. Her knights were fighting valiantly but they were outnumbered 10 to 1. She stayed calm but finally, reluctantly, had to order a retreat. But she herself stayed on the battlefield until every knight was on his way back to Compiègne the first of Jean's men were reaching the drawbridge and safety, their horses' hooves clattering across the wood planks of the bridge. Then the last of the men, and as Jean followed, her horse drawing near to the drawbridge with the Burgundians in mad pursuit, Guillaume de Flavy screamed out the order to close the drawbridge, believing that the last moment had arrived before the enemy would have access to the city. He had to have been able to see that she and a half dozen men of her personal guard had not reached it or he misjudged, or he committed a heartless treason. No one knows for sure, but the drawbridge slammed shut. The portcullis fell to the earth, and Jeanne of Arc, the hero of France, was trapped. Behind her, she faced a horde of enemies determined to take down the witch, and in front of her, a massive wooden door standing between her and freedom. We'll return to our story right after this message from our sponsor And now, back to our story. Jeanne's personal guard turned their horses to face the onslaught and fought bravely beside her, but they were cut down one by one until only Jeanne remained. She then was roughly dragged off her horse by an archer who grabbed hold of her doublet and threw her roughly to the earth. She was then dragged from the battlefield. The greatest weapon France had had in the Hundred Years' War was now lost, and the men of Compiègne stood and watched as she was dragged away. "'too afraid to come out and fight to win her back. "'The odds, by numbers, were heavily against them. "'But some must have known that without Jean, "'the heart of France had stopped beating, "'and death would be coming to them soon anyway for resisting. "'Had there been a strong leader within those walls, "'history might have been changed. "'But none save those who had already died beside her "'had the courage of the sixteen-year-old farm girl "'with the dream for a free France.' Jeanne was spirited away to the nearby castle of Beaurevoir. She had expected capture, and even told her closest advisers that St. Catherine and St. Margaret had visited her, and told her that she would soon be captured and forced to endure a long and terrible imprisonment. She was not treated well. For now, she was a prisoner of the Burgundians, who were not as bad as the English, many of them being of Frankish descent. But the English would get her soon." Jeanne maintained her men's clothing, figuring the worst from her captors, and she did her best to escape, at one time attempting to jump from the top of a sixty-foot tower into the mossy-covered ground below. As she balanced on the low wall between two battlements, the voices came and told her not to jump, and she thought about it long and hard, but jumped anyway, hitting the ground with a force that knocked her out. The impact of the six-story jump should have killed her, but she was lucky. "'escaping death with only a concussion "'and bruised bones. "'The Burgundians soon sold her to the English "'for the sum of 10,000 livres tournois, "'turnois being the synonym for francs, "'that sum being about $11,000 today. "'Back then, it was a king's ransom. "'We armchair historians today "'would believe she was worth it at any price, "'but Charles either had no money to cough up, "'or he didn't see it that way. "'The English moved Joan to the city of Rouen,' where she was treated terribly, being chained to a wall. Several rescue attempts were made by a group called the Armagnacs from the Gascony region in southwest France, one during the winter of 1430-31 and another in March of 1431, just months before her execution, which took place in May of that year. Charles VII threatened to exact vengeance upon the troops who had captured her and those who held her now, but no one on the English or Burgundian side was shaking in their boots. They were going to try Jeanne for heresy, so that they could get the backing of the church to put her to death. Much of Jeanne's first trial, which was one-sided and politically motivated, and yes, those still happen today, was recorded, and historians have been poring over the transcripts and witness accounts for centuries. Not one historian has ever come up with evidence based upon the laws of that era that would either identify her as a heretic or render a sentence that would condemn her to death. The trial was a naked attempt to discredit Jean, insult King Charles VII, and provide a religious excuse for murdering Jeanne d'Arc, hoping that if they could pile enough shame and lies upon her reputation, she would not become a martyr that Frenchmen would want to fight for in the coming days, weeks, and months. The court that was assembled to try Jeanne was made up of Englishmen, Burgundians loyal to the English crown, and their sympathizers. There were no friends of Jeanne d'Arc, Those who were suspected of standing up for her were contacted and threatened before the trial ever began. Documents were falsified. Phony charges were created. On February 21, 1431, Jeanne was facing a room full of enemies, and although weak and emaciated from being chained to a wall for the past three months, she was no doubt enjoying the freedom of being in her room with other humans while she still had the ability to speak. She entered the room carrying her head high, her eyes still shining with inner strength, not wanting to be seen as cowed by the assemblage that was gathered there for the purpose of putting her to death. Her presence unnerved the court, most of whom had never seen her before. She gave the entire room a long glance with her penetrating eyes, watching the weak ones fidget and cross themselves in the presence of the maid, whom many of the less intelligent considered to be a witch with special powers. Among the crowd stood the Duke of Bedford and the Earl of Warwick, whose mighty armies she had bested, both smugly watching her, knowing her last days were near. Nicholas Bailey, a clerical notary whose honesty was not doubted, and who had interviewed dozens of witnesses trying to find something they could charge Jean with, and had failed, was watching as well. The vice-inquisitor of northern France, Jean Lemaitre, was also in the assemblage. He had loudly objected to the trial at the outset, and several eyewitnesses later said that he was forced to cooperate after his life was threatened. The Dominican friar Isambard de la Pierre also spoke up, and he was threatened with death. These threats and the domination of the trial by a secular government were violations of the church rules and undermined the right of the church to conduct heresy trials without secular interference. The notary had also registered Jean's complaint that she was entitled to some kind of defense, "'Of course, she was provided none. "'They had no grounds to try Jeanne for heresy, "'yet try her they did. "'The Bishop Pierre Couchon, "'an English partisan known to all but the uninformed "'as being loyal to England, "'and who would lead this trial as well as her later one, "'led with the first question. "'Do you swear to tell the truth "'in answer to such questions as are put to you?' "'He asked. "'I have no idea what you wish to examine me on,' "'she answered calmly, knowing that no reason for this trial even existed. Perhaps she would ask such things that I would not be able to tell. She was setting the tone for the rest of the trial and refusing to accept the oath. That first day they told her that if she tried to escape again from her prison that she would be tried for heresy. They were looking for excuses. She was asked about the voices. She was told that the voices she heard had been a hallucination. They told her she was mentally ill day after day, and the days wore on. This was not a trial. It was a long and grueling interrogation. They told her it was heresy to wear men's clothes, which she still wore in prison, in an effort to avoid being attacked. At one point she told her mostly Catholic inquisitors that the voices were speaking to her even now. What do they tell you? They questioned. To be bold, and that God would help me, she answered. Theological questions were put to her to trip her up. One was, Do you know if you are in the grace of God? It was a trick question. If she answered yes, they would accuse her of being prideful. If she answered no, that would be a sin. She answered, quickly, If I am not, may God place me there. If I am, may God so keep me. Her answers were inspired, and this bothered the English, as she was garnering respect in that courtroom and that was the last thing the puppet-masters wanted. They conducted the final weeks of Inquisition in prison. As the days wore on, Jeanne became more and more exhausted. Having nothing else, the court declared her guilty of wearing men's clothes, a heresy in those times, and they sentenced her to death. Jeanne soon found herself standing and listening to the Catholic bishop reading her sentence. As the dog returns to his vomit, he read, so you have returned to your errors and crimes. Tears poured down her cheeks. It was May 30th, 1431, and she was about to be burned at the stake. Eight hundred English soldiers stood around her at this public execution, some shifting their feet nervously, not knowing what to expect from this young girl who some said had the powers of a witch. "'We decree,' the bishop continued, "'that you are a relapsed heretic by your present sentence, which, seat in the tribunal,' We utter and pronounce in this writing. We denounce you as a rotten member. His words droned on and on as John prayed quietly to herself, raising her hand to her chest to feel the tiny, hard shape of a little wooden cross that one of the English soldiers had made for her. The shape of the wood reassured her a little, allowing her to stand quietly and listen to the garbage that continued to pour out of the mouth of the bishop. The voices were still now, They had always known this day would come. To what purpose? For what purpose had they chosen her? She was followed closely by Martin Ladvenu, her confessor, who carried a crucifix from the local church, which she had begged him to bring so that she could gaze upon the face of her beloved Jesus. She wept now constantly as she was bound to the stake, but she did not beg for mercy. As the flames rose, she begged Martin to lift the crucifix higher, and he did so. She at last screamed Jesus three times. Then one last time. Many of the soldiers and the onlookers cried openly. She had told Prior Martin that her death would not be the end of the story. She believed that she would be singing and dancing with God. In the years following her death, Charles Seventh would continue to rule over France, and he became an able and just king. England was forced to give up his hold on much of France, having lost the Hundred Years' War, and been forced to pull its forces from France. King Charles created one of the first standing armies in history. This was the beginning of the end for privately funded armies, for knights, and for the age of chivalry. It was also the beginning of France as we know it today, a free country. Jeanne d'Arc's name, as well as her English name, Joan of Arc, remained on every pair of lips in the kingdom that she had freed and no one has ever denied that her leadership and courage was the reason France is still France, and not some English territory. In 1452, Jeanne's mother requested a retrial, knowing full well that laws of the Church and State had been broken by evil men, some who wore religious robes, some who had not, and Pope Calixtus III agreed to her request. Jeanne d'Arc's name was cleared in 1456, and Pierre Couchon, the man who had ruled over her trial, was declared guilty of heresy himself for persecuting her due to his political agenda. Through the centuries, statues and memorials sprang up throughout France, and multiple books and movies were made about her. The great American novelist Mark Twain even did a biography on her, and we'll cover that one day soon right here at 1001 Heroes. John was officially canonized in 1909, 497 years after she was born. She became St. Joan patron saint of France, and a feast day and holiday were dedicated to her in her name. And when you think about her and what she sacrificed, and the courage that she showed right up to the end, you can't help but know that here was a person we can all look up to for inspiration. Without her faith and her courage, there would be no independent France. And we Americans know well that without the support of the French fleet at Yorktown, America might well have lasted much longer as an English colony. Without Francis Lafayette, George Washington might not have gotten the support of France. Without the free-thinking French philosopher Montesquieu and his belief in the separation of powers, Thomas Jefferson's inspiration to write one of the most stirring freedom documents in history, as well as the combined philosophies that went into the creation of the U.S. Constitution, America might not be the free country it is today, and much of the world would look quite different. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. We're actively seeking support right now at Patreon, and we're asking you to help us. For about the cost of a cup of blended coffee every month, you can help us to move forward. I do this podcast, in fact, a whole network of story podcasts, alone, and this is my full-time work. Many of my competitors have full-time staffs—writers, research people, audio people, marketing people— Hosts and readers. But I wear all those hats here. Sponsors help, but so do individuals like you who appreciate the good shows we're putting out every week and all that it takes to produce them. I know that it's easy to turn a blind eye to requests like this and that we all have a lot of things to think of and do without pledging a lot of causes. But what we do here provides nourishment to the brain. It teaches, it makes you think, and it entertains all in one. And you only have to sign on to Patreon once and your donation is set for every month. We can be found at patreon.com, that's patreo ncom forward slash, 1001storiesnetwork. That's patreon.com, forward slash, 1001storiesnetwork. And your support will be greatly appreciated. Send us a little love every month, and we'll do our best to return it every week through our shows. We'll leave a link in the show notes for you as well. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Thanks so much for being with us. And thanks so much for staying with 1001 through these years and enjoying all these adventures with me. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern just like we always do with a brand new episode. Maybe Mark Twain's biography on Joan of Arc. Everyone stay safe and we'll be back soon.